After a year of running experiments, we realized that successful sellers and marketers didn't have the next greatest playbook. They actually had frameworks, insights, and tests that they ran and refined. Welcome to the B2B Power Hour, where we align go-to-market teams together to win the right business with better experiments. I'm your host, Nicholas Dickett, and I'm a seller. And I'm your other host, Morgan Smith, and I'm a marketer. Join us for live shows and interviews that will help you learn what to test so you can sell and market better to your customers and prospects. Now, on to today's episode. Today, we're diving into the essentials of great outbound with Bilal Batrawi. Bilal is the founder at Death to Fluff. He's a LinkedIn sales star and someone with, frankly, like deep, deep experience in outbound. So let's dive on in. Bilal, thanks for coming on the show. It's my honor and privilege, Morgan. Thank you. So happy you're here. I'm excited, man. I'm excited. <laughs> this has been a long time coming. I mean, it's months, months and months and months yeah, in the making it was. to get you on the it show. Was since Aster. Since Aster last year. <laughs> yeah, since last fall. So I'm so glad that you're here. No, thanks for having me, man. Me too. You know, the thing about outbound, at least I feel, and I want your take on this, I feel like it's changed a lot in the last three years, right? Like since the pandemic, I feel a lot of the, I feel like there are still some fundamentals that apply, but then there's a bunch of other stuff that maybe we were doing in 2018, 2019, 2020 that just doesn't work anymore. Do you feel that that's the case? Do you see that a lot? The skeptical thought is, doesn't everybody that's ever been a seller always say sales is changing and yet we do the same things we've done since like 15, 20, even 30 years ago? But then I'll tell you what has changed, at least in the almost 15 years I've been in sales. I've never seen buyers have such a adverse reaction to bad outbound. Hmm. Okay. This is probably the first time, like like pandemic, I remember there was a period of time where I was like, SDRs better be careful what they send because there's just like, it seems like there's buyer after buyer with very little tolerance. And I guess all the stresses of everything happening, being at home, not knowing what's going on, not being, you know, isolated, whatever was causing people just to go online and rip each other. And one of those groups that was mm. getting ripped was like the sellers messaging them. There was a run there, uh, and maybe that was recency bias, and I just felt like it was happening a lot. But my feed seemed to have been dominated by like CFOs tearing into some seller or some CEO or CMO posting something and bashing on sales. And it was like, there's a lot of hate right now, a lot of pent-up aggression. Yeah, <laughs> And it did spill over slightly <laughs> after. It kind of wind down a bit after the pandemic, but I don't say it went away completely. So I think there has mm. been some changes, at least, because the world did change in the last three years. Totally. Do you think also, and maybe it's related to this aggression or, you know, distaste with poor outbound, is that because like buying has changed as well in B2B? Yeah. Like one thing that we see a lot is where buyer, not just like the buying has grown, but also the like the ways buyers are educating themselves and interacting with companies has changed a lot in the last few yeah. years. And maybe it's this like weird legacy thing we're still doing like outbound as if it's 2015 yeah. and buying is in 2015. Yeah. That change, there's one significant change that is backed by data. Whether you look at, the, like I look at these state of sales reports by the big boys and, you know, they amalgamate hundreds, thousands, sometimes millions of data points from their own business and from their customer's business. And one statistic 
stands out that the amount of people involved in a decision has been going up consistently for the last 10 years. Hmm. Every year, year over year, the amount of people involved in the decision-making process. So there's like this dilution of decision-making ability in our buyers. Nothing sellers are doing. You're not, you know, if you're listening to this and you're selling like, uh, you know, it's not your fault, but it is your problem. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not hmm. your fault, but it's your problem now. <laughs> The decision-making abilities being diluted at companies, the amount of committees, you know, purchased by committee that's occurring is staggering and over purchasing numbers that I think don't warrant the amount of people involved. Like I hear from sellers where they're selling like a 20K, a 30K deal. They've got like six people involved. I'm like six people to buy a 30K oh. product. I mean, what? Oh. I mean, you. I think you got the decimals Agreed. wrong. If it was like 300K, I'd understand why six people need involved. But 30K is like a two-person decision, not six. Like mm -hmm. So you see this across the board with different products in different, and now the CFO is involved. So that's a whole new thing. And before they weren't, but now they're like intimately involved in every purchase. So yeah, that is happening. And that mm. sucks for sales because the complexity of each additional decision maker or person in the committee is exponential, not additive. So it's not like going from hmm. two to three is two times harder or three times harder. It's to the power of three. So it's like nine times harder, <laughs> you know? It's exponential, yeah. no really it is. It's exponential, the amount of work you have to do when you go from three decision makers to four, four to five, five to six. It is overwhelming. Hmm. Well. One thing I think that brings me to sort of the core thesis of this episode, which is like, you work with a lot of sellers. I know you do workshops, you do training, you do speaking. Also, I'm sure your DMs are full of advice that will never see the day of, or the light of day, unless if you decide to share it on like a Substack <laughs> or whatever. So like, what are, and maybe we can start with one thing. What is one thing that you see, like really top tier outbound SDRs, top tier full cycle account executives doing that maybe a novice isn't doing on outbound right now? They're really courageous with provocative messaging. Like they know how mm. to activate the limbic brain of their buyer. And they have either the psychological safety because of the management team that they work for, whatever it is, or just the confidence as being a top professional or like an elite practitioner to write messages that I think other sellers would shy away from, would shy away going towards. I mean, if you can activate the limbic brain of your buyer in a cold email, you're not doing it by playing it safe. You took a risk, whether it was a meme that you threw in there or a GIF or some sort of visual aid, or because you decided to kind of put a stake in the ground and make them choose between A and B, like you're doing something that's getting them emotionally charged. And that, that to me, no matter what era you sell in, whether it was the 1920s or the 2020s or whatever it's gonna be, at the end of the day, if you're still selling to human beings and we're not you know, going to a world where we, AI sells and buys from each other, um, you gotta <laughs> activate the limbic brain because the brain science is in, it's uncontested. Decisions start in your emotional limbic brain. Yeah, so let's unpack that because you brought up a few things, a brilliant distillation and I wanna make sure we hit on each yeah. of those. So let's start with the limbic brain. What is it? How does it yeah. work? So it's got different names, your croc brain, your old brain. It's essentially the brain stem, the part of your brain that goes down 
your neck and it's responsible for fight, flight, or freeze reactions. So it's the part of your brain that mm. thinks about like life and death. And it is where decision-making starts. Like they've done the MRI scans and the CAT scans and all this stuff. In fact, the science is so overwhelming in this category that I think over like almost 10 years ago, there was a research institute in Germany that could predict the decision people are going to make a full eight seconds before they were even aware that they have come to a decision just by looking at the Whoa. brain scan. It's wild. Imagine eight full seconds before you're even aware you've made a decision. They're like, yeah, you're going to do this. <laughs> like, you're like, whoa. That's crazy. I, you all know, I didn't even know I was going to do that yet. Yeah. Like, I was still thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, strap me up to this machine. Tell me right. what to do, please. Right? Like, so that, like there's an overwhelming brain science when I say this in regards to decision-making mm. and the limbic brain is the starting point. If you're a seller and you don't know about it, you need to start reading about it immediately. Like stop everything you're doing because you cannot, you cannot become an elite practitioner of sales if you don't know how people make decisions. It's never going to happen. And you've thrown out this word a couple of times about this sort of like emotional charge. So at a high, like we don't have to go into all the neuroscience here, but there seems to be a relationship between activating the limbic brain and something about an emotional charge. So could you explain a little bit more how those two things relate? Yeah. So I'm going to do it right now. Okay. So there's two types of sellers, okay. sellers that understand how decision-making works and those that don't. The ones that do are going to have a ceiling that is extremely high. They can reach the pinnacle of our profession. Those that don't have a very, very low ceiling and may probably just meander in mediocrity in their career and never really hit. That right there was limbic brain messaging. It was emotionally charged. I mm. put a stake in the ground. I claimed that there are winners and losers. And I made you kind of cognitively think, well, what side do I want to be on? Do I want to be on the side that Bidad claims is going to be mediocre or the side that's going to be elite? All of that was limbic brain messaging right now. That's not true. There's not mm. two types of sellers. There's millions of types of sellers. <laughs> I just made that up. <laughs> what you, like, you know what I mean? Like, that's not true at all. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many shades of gray. But when you paint things in black and white, zero, one, like this kind of binary nature, mm. that's limbic brain message because you're forcing people to choose a side and it stirs an emotion. It might stir an emotion of FOMO, fear of missing out. It might stir an emotion of laughter. It might stir an emotion of being afraid or angry. Whatever it is, you're looking for some sort of emotion from your buyer when you do that. Love that. I think this ties neatly into one of the other things you brought up, which is like courageous messaging, this idea of being provocative, of being colorful and tying in this emotional charge. So like, what does that look like or what does that sound like? Because I think you sort of brought up a few different examples about how that might come across. So when you work with a seller and you're thinking about, all right, let's work on some colorful or, or disruptive or courageous messaging, what are the guide rails for developing something like that? I'll give you a classic example that happens, okay? Uh, pretty much every company I know has some case study of their customer saving whatever X amount of time or X amount of money because they use you know, the product and blah, 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 okay? Now, yeah. average seller takes that copy, paste, puts it into the email. We worked with Verizon and saved them you know, a million dollars on their blah, blah, blah. Okay. Totally safe messaging, boring, <laughs> ignorable. Mm -hmm. Let's rephrase <laughs> it into something that's emotionally charged. We prevented Verizon from pissing away a million dollars that they were able to put back into bonuses so that their bosses could get their kids the toy they wanted and more for Christmas. It's the same message, right? But it, all I did was I flipped saving a million dollars 
to wasting the million dollars and what that million dollars means to those people. And that's very different. Now I tied the million dollars to a loss instead of a gain. And I tied it to something mm. personal, relatable, buying something for your kids for Christmas with your bonus check at the end of the year with the same exact stat. That's takes like, you got to really, that's premeditated. You got to really think about that and say, okay, this savings, what does it really imply? What's the other side of the coin of that? They saved a million, meaning if hmm. they hadn't done this decision, they would have really wasted a million dollars. And that million dollars is now no longer in the bank account for them to do what? Pay themselves, do this, do that, whatever it is that they wanted to do. And now you're creating a story from a stat and stories win. You know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be in sales to know that good stories win, especially when the people reading the story can see themselves within it, that it feels relatable. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, that feels like it could be my story. I don't want to piss away a million. Yeah. I'll look really good if we save a million dollars <laughs> this year and everybody gets a bonus. Yeah. Me. I'll look really good. Yeah. That's interesting because my background's in marketing and I feel like marketers get a lot more tradecraft around articulating headlines, copy, sort of being, no, I mean, B2B, maybe less so. I feel like a lot of the industry plays it pretty safe, but at least in my, you yeah. know, from the more consumer side and B2C stuff, like you can, you really get to play with headlines and word choice and and messaging. And it's part of the craft of basically being a marketer, yeah. whether you're running an ad or writing a headline. Yeah. It feels to me, and I don't want to misdiagnose this, but it feels to me like that's less of the toolkit taught to sales people. Totally. Why is that? I want your take. Like, why do you think we haven't helped sellers do that? There's two things that sellers typically don't get trained on, which is kind of alarming when you think about it. The first I already mentioned, how the science behind decision-making is not actually something commonly taught in sales training. For me, for example, I went three years before I was exposed to the first bit of brain science around training or decision-making. Mm -hmm. The only reason why I knew about it beforehand was because I had a minor in psychology, social psychology. So I had already been exposed to some of that stuff. And I would say that it actually did help me in my early sales career compensate for the fact that my sales training didn't have it. And the second thing that's oddly missing from most sales training is how to write. It's almost like assume that, well, you graduated university or you went through high school, so let's rely on your high school or college writing skills to figure this part out. And it's not, it's a different game. It's just a different game with different set of rules and a different style. And most likely you were not taught that in school. You were taught traditional writing, like how to, you know, summarize a book or, you know, color mark a poem. That's not helping you write a cold email. <laughs> not, that's not going to get you anywhere. So, yeah, there is a copy. You sure? I don't know, man. You can start underlining them blue and red. <laughs> start making and, yeah, a haiku. No. You're like, I got this. <laughs> that would yeah. actually that'd be a pretty cool email if you did a haiku. Actually, yeah. I mean, yeah, a haiku's not a bad idea. If you that'd be pretty sick. But, but uh, yeah, it's like you don't get taught that stuff. You get taught what people consider traditional selling, which is usually product-related, Persona-related, industry-related, and maybe, maybe a bit about professionally-related common sales techniques like the assumptive close and things of that nature. But you're mm -hmm. not taught like core writing skills. You won't get that. You won't get that. And you're right. Like B2C is inspirational compared to B2B. I mean, it's aspirational. I'd love for B2B one day to be as good as B2C. I mean, 
The fact that Snickers can figure out the jobs to be done of a chocolate bar, but we can't figure out the jobs to be done of a piece of software. I'm like, I'm like, you know, like, I can imagine trying to figure out the jobs to be done of a chocolate bar. I'd be like, where do we oh start? Gosh. This is stupid. This is crazy. But they do it. And then create a whole campaign yeah, around it. They do it. it. Yeah. And it's uh-huh. amazing. Yeah. They crush it. Yeah. That's fascinating to me. I so for the seller who's listening to this who wants to start playing mm. with courageous messaging, who wants to start experimenting, I feel like there's a lot of fear about doing it wrong. Yeah. So what are some guidelines? Some maybe a few things to avoid and a few things to look for when it comes to developing better messaging? That's a really good question. Let me think about that for a second, because if I was starting off and I didn't, here's how, where I learned, I learned fortunately, and this shaped how I think about sales. I learned from master sellers. I had two master sellers in my career, kind of like in the middle stages that really catapulted my understanding of the profession. And I really feel like sales is a trade skill like carpentry. Like anybody can pick up a knife and start whacking wood. You're not going to be very good at it, but you can do it. (laughs) But if you want to be a master carpenter, Mm -hmm. you better go find a master carpenter and sign up for an apprenticeship and, you know, be their apprentice. And the same way, if you want to be an elite seller, I'd really recommend finding an elite seller and becoming their apprentice and trying to learn from them because there's going to be things that just, they're not in the books that you're going to need to know to get to the next level that they're going to show you, or they're in the books, but they're going to demonstrate the how. So that's one piece to it. But if you wanted to learn, there are there is a world of material on copywriting for B2C. Now, it takes some translating as a B2B seller to really understand what they're talking about. But some of the core principles are, are very obvious when they talk about, it's got to be about them, not you. You want to use provocative messaging. So we're going to use words that elicit an emotion. So instead of saying saving time, we're going to say pissing away. Like that, that has a different feel. Mm-hmm. Those words don't feel the same. And one is much more, much less of a common saying and much more aggressive and carries with it some context or some connotations to it. You know, using the word cheap instead of the word economic, economical, right? When it's your competitors, it's cheap. But when it's about you, it's economical. You're not cheap. Never be cheap, right? And you could do these sort of ways of manipulating the words and the feelings around the words. And it's there. If you look at any B2C, just, I mean, a simple Google search of like B2C rules of great copywriting, and you're going to find so much knowledge there that these marketers have discovered. And strangely enough, our best friends as sellers, outbound sellers, are direct response copywriters. Hmm. They're like our, you know, estranged cousins. <laughs> they're sitting there, <laughs> they're sitting there doing what we do on a really big scale for B2C brands. These are the people who are responsible for writing, you know, the email for, you know, some campaign Coca-Cola is about to do to like a million people. But what they come up with and the rules that they follow are v- almost completely applicable. You can almost like copy and paste those rules for good B2B outbound, because what they focus on is buyer side psychology. And that doesn't change whether you're selling a stick of gum or a piece of software. It's the same buyer side psychology. Love that. 
The other thing that you brought up in your first answer, which I didn't want to miss on before we dive a little bit further, was psychological safety on the team. Because I can already hear, (laughs) I can already hear the manager saying, you sent what? (laughs) Like, you sent an email that included pissing away to a prospect? You sent what? So like, I mean, talk to me about either finding or developing psychological safety inside of a team and how somebody might know they have it or don't have it wherever they work. Part of it comes from, like, I'll give you an example how I built psychological safety on my team, okay? If you joined my team when I was a VP, you were given day one a codified career growth plan, okay? It just had essentially, like in a list format, everything you'd have to do to get to the next level, you know, from entry-level SDR to... SDR from SDR to senior SDR from senior SDR to junior AE and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it just had levels. Okay. And people would know before I did that they reached the next level. They come up to be like, I checked, I got it. I did everything on my level. I'm like, Hey, congrats. I'm going to just verify it all. Put in the request. You'll get your job title change. If there's pay upgrade in this one, you'll get your pay upgrade. Super simple because I didn't want my bias as a manager impacting their career. You know, I don't like them. Oh, they don't like to play golf. They don't care about Formula One and I do, so I'm not going to promote them. No, none of that. Okay. (laughs) And we put in very strictly for the entry level positions, the first two levels, you are there to learn, not to teach. Okay. So come in, shut up, (laughs) listen, Mm -hmm. see why we do things. Don't, don't offer suggestions. We don't want them. Not yet. There will come a time but just understand what we're doing first. Get the basics down. Just get the basics down, okay? And then by the time you're at level three to five, you are completely hands-on and allowed to manipulate and change and try new things all within some guidelines so that we can make sure that they were like good experiments worth doing and we can measure that they actually move the needle or not. That's psychological safety because now you're in an environment where it's the priorities are, are right for you. We did what's in your best interest to make sure that you were successful versus when you're in a sales floor where there's none of that, there's no career plan. You're not being told what you need to do. There's sort of this expectation that you're going to have to buddy up to your manager or their manager to sort yourself out. And uh, the idea of changing the copy and marketing getting pissed at you and your manager is not going to have your back in that conversation and you're on your own. Well, you're probably just not at a good job. That just doesn't sound like Mm. a good place to be. Uh, so be mindful of my advice here. I wouldn't follow it if I, you know, if, if you're in that scenario, because I'm going to get you in hot water using some of this language in your messaging. I've had directors at some of the companies I'm at as a VP tell me my team sends out irresponsible and unprofessional emails, and I was like, <laughs> talk to the scoreboard. I could care less. Yeah, <laughs> because I was a VP going to provide psychological safety for my team in that moment. And be like, I don't care what you think. Your opinion mm-hmm. in this is the least important one, believe it or not. The internal opinion of our email <laughs> is the least important one on the entire totem pole. The number one opinion is our mm-hmm. buyers. Do they like the email? <laughs> and then does yeah. our team feel good yep. sending it? And do I like what they're sending? Mm-hmm. Da, 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 and you are like dead last. <laughs> I hate to break it to you. <laughs> you know, so you, you got to have a manager that can have that kind of conversation and back you up when you send this stuff. And if you don't have that manager, please. Don't send this stuff because you're going to get into some uncomfortable conversation. There are some prospects that respond negatively to provocative messaging. We said there's a, you are creating a stake in the ground. You're creating 
a false, you know, a, a false choice, if you will, between A and B. Some people don't mm. respond kindly to that. If you send it to a thousand people, of course, there's going to be one in a thousand, two in a thousand that aren't going to like it. But there's going to be another 150, 200 that do. I'll take the 200 for two mm-hmm. trade all day. Right. I, I yep. have no issue with that. Yeah. It's funny. I think about like the threat. We just received like our first major like hate comment on YouTube, mm. which is like my favorite threshold of the internet where you get like enough exposure <laughs> that people just like, like there's enough numbers, yeah. right? There's enough eyeballs on something that one person in that mix of eyeballs is like, this sucks, you know, you are a piece of whatever. And I'm like, yeah, that's part of the game or part of the deal, right? Because it's that same, we're trying to like mm-hmm. strike or provide emotionally charged content. And I'm sure a lot of the same is true on Outbound. Oh, for sure. Um, for sure. Oh yeah, reaching to reaching to buyers. I get all the same. I know just to give your buyers or your listeners courage. I get all the same nasty messages from buyers as, as you all do. You know, yeah. even myself, when I prospect or cold call for my team and I'm out there on the phone and I got, you know, 13 years experience, like eight of them in hundred percent pure outbound sales. And I've, I've probably done, I don't know how many thousands of cold calls, like no joke easily. Like I'm talking about conversations too, not dials, forget dials. It's like probably in the tens of thousands. And I still get hung up on like the best of them. Cause you, you know, you get somebody whose cat just died. doesn't matter what you're going to say. doesn't matter how, how your tone is and whether you stood up and you know, all this nonsense, their cat just died and you're cold calling them and they're pissed. <laughs> and yeah. they're going to say a mean thing to you. They're like, shut up and don't call me again. You a-hole. And they're going to hang up. And you're going to be like, well, yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe, they, you know. Something bad just happened and they just, you know, they just got fired. You don't know. Hmm. So you cold calling them at the worst moment possible. Move on. It's okay. Yeah. This is actually an unplanned segue because one of the things, now that you're talking about calling, one of the things I want to, we spent some time dwelling sort of on the written side of it, looking at B2C copywriting. Obviously, email is only, and sometimes social messages, but, you know, written is is only one form of outbound. Hmm. So I wanted to talk through a little bit about calling and reaching prospects over the phone. I know you have a very famous mic drop method worksheet. If y'all don't have it and you're listening to this, you better go get it. It's an all-timer. Like there are, I've seen a lot of sales resources. It's an all-timer below about opening up, opening up a cold call. But before we actually get to like articulating something on the phone, Mm -hmm. what I wanted to ask is sort of a riff on a similar question. When you look at the expert SDRs or the top performers on Outbound. What are they doing to prepare for calling or prepare for their Outbound you know, numbers that the novice SDRs aren't doing yet? Another really good question. Okay, I'm going to give an example like this. Let's say you're really good at a sport. Okay, you're really good at soccer. At some point, you're going to reach a level, whether it's soccer, basketball, tennis, pick any sport. You're going to reach a point where... You're playing with other players who know how to serve, know how to pass, know how to shoot, know how to make a layup. And each of you has done thousands, if not tens of thousands of layups at this point. And yet, some of those players are going to be just way better than you. What's the difference? What breaks the mold there? Why some people surpass others when you can sit there and do a thousand layups just like them, but they seem to always make the shot and you're kind of hit and miss some point it comes down to mentality, mentality, right? Mentality starts becoming, if you already know, so this is my caveat. If you already know the basics on how to do a great cold call, you understand why to use a permission-based opener. 
You understand how to close a cold call. You understand when to shut up and when to speak and these sort of things. Like these things take time to learn. Don't feel bad if you're still in the process of learning them. It took me a year and a half easily to get kind of really good at it. And a lot of mistakes in that year and a half. That's fine. But once you get there, the difference between the elite practitioners and the average ones becomes how they think about the outcome. Like if I cold called right now, like right now, if we just told me on the spot, be dead, we're going to hook you up to a power dialer, go. I'd be like, okay. I literally, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't even see me back. I'd be like, all right, let's go. Who am I calling? Okay, great. Thanks. That's all I, all I need is a name. I don't care if that person responds, if they're rude, if I can get through to them, you know, if I get them talking, but don't quite get the meeting, I'm okay with whatever the outcome is because I've seen every outcome a thousand times now. So it's almost like I'm numb to it. That's not my concern. I'm fine with whatever the, I'm totally detached. I feel totally fine what happens. It's just me being me. I'm going to have fun with it. When people are rude, I'm going to be rude back. When people snap at me, I'm going to snap back. I'm going to have fun with it. I'm going to laugh and enjoy it. I'm going to call those people in three weeks time, see if they even remember me and kind of troll mm-hmm. them. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I, have re- like, I, I remember when I had, we had three new SDRs of GTM buddy that joined. And they were sending messages from my LinkedIn as me, okay? Mm. Which I I let them. I was like, go ahead and do it because tap into my network. Let's gain some benefit from it for as long as we can. And I remember on different days, I'd sit with them and and I would write the messages. And, you know, they'd get these snappy kind of rude responses from prospects. And they're shocked. They're like, oh, I can't believe they responded to you that way, Bilad. And I'm like, why? I'm just a person like any other person. They can be snappy with me too. I'm like, they're snap back. And I'd send them some sort of trolley gif, you know, <laughs> some sort of like really <laughs> funny one just to like troll them back. Uh-huh. And I remember the one of the SDRs was just like shocked. He was just like, like jaw drop. Like, I can't believe you responded to him that way. I'm like, who? I don't care about him. He's one prospect. What the, he can't talk to me that way or you. He doesn't know that it's you. So it's me. He can't talk to me that way. So we, we're going to clap back at him. Yeah. That's ridiculous for him to send that. And if he blocks us, good riddance. Big deal. The world's so big, man. You know how many people are in the world? We're fine. We're going to be totally, totally yeah. fine. <laughs> like So I that mentality, that. you got to just adopt that once you have the basics down. Don't have that mentality when you don't have the basics, because then you're just going to sound like a jerk. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> right. You have to uh, earn the right in yeah. some ways. I think about from... Seth Godin has this wonderful book called The Practice, which is about like just shipping stuff, just getting stuff out into the world. And from a content perspective, from a creative perspective, obviously, it's a huge challenge, that imposter syndrome in the back of your head. This post isn't good enough. Having done copywriting, this landing page isn't good enough. Having done video, this video doesn't look good enough. This video doesn't sound... And a lot of the point to what you're saying is once you've got the basics, right? If I'm going to put together a, a landing page that whose copy is not actually all that good or a video that is poor quality or not well paced or or so forth like i don't have the basics down once i got that down then it really is just shipping it it's just going for it and it's that mentality i had to adopt i think on linkedin like a year ago where it's like i don't know if this post is going to go anywhere and hey look it got eight likes i don't really care and then next day it's 150 yeah, like oh, nobody remembers the eight likes no literally <laughs> and nobody Except remembers you. it no you do <laughs> but like right. that's the that's and once oh, you the poor cold that, call or yeah, that it's just you <laughs> yeah it's just you making a big deal yeah. of it. 
Because I, I told the SDR, yeah. it's like, you're the one making the big deal, but I don't care. I moved on. <laughs> I'm like, boom, I sent him the, the yeah. funny gift, trolled him back, moved on, could care less what he responds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One thing I wanted to tie in, you had brought in a few examples of like what companies train for. So they'll train for like industry knowledge and product knowledge and sometimes persona knowledge. Of all of the, I know, <laughs> having seen a lot of it, some of it's just BS and some of it's not useful or it's distracting to the overall seller. So for an SDR that's gone through the onboarding process that, and they started on outbound, they sort of had the basics down. What are some things that they should have in front of them or some questions they should be able to answer about the people that they're reaching out to or the people they're targeting that maybe their company provided, but probably didn't? I'll give you a great hack. If I was an SDR right now and you put me into an industry that I didn't know, selling to a persona that I've never sold to, the first thing I'd do is try to pull up 15 to 30 job descriptions of that exact title. So it's like, you're going to sell the VP of, um, you know, Medicare stars for like regional health plans. I'd be like, what the hell do those people do? <laughs> yeah. No <What>? idea. <laughs> I'm going to Google. I'm going to hit up. I'm VP of stars, anything stars related to Medicare, directors, VP roles that are open. I'm going to try to find 30 open roles and I'm going to read them word for word. And I'm going to throw them in the chat GPT now that we got it. I'm going to tell chat GPT, summarize this job description and five bullet points for me. Do it for every single job description, all 30 of them. And then I want to see if there's a pattern. What language are they using? What do they talk about? What's their words? I don't know their words. I, I don't know how Medicare directors speak, but I'm sure they have their own little lingo and language. And I'm going to pick it up literally in 10 minutes. I'm like, okay, I don't know what STARS is, but they seem to talk about it a lot. I'm going to mention STARS somewhere in my cold email, somewhere in my cold call script. And hopefully by the time I do, somebody from the company will explain to me what a STAR is, but these STAR ratings seem to be yeah. really important for them. You know, and that's it. I'm going to steal right from their job description. I've had Morgan certain email copy that was literally a word for word copy paste from a job description where I just say, I'd imagine you're working on blank, <laughs> literally sentence stolen from yeah. job description. <laughs> and I get no joke, man. Responds to people are like, yeah, you're pretty, you kind of hit the nail on the head. That's pretty much what I am doing right now. I'm like, well, I hope so because it's in the job description <laughs> for somebody just like you at company XYZ. So I hope to God you're doing the same yeah. thing they are. Otherwise, we got a real problem. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> so, you know, that's your hack is look at the job description. It is a gold mine. It describes exactly what that person is. Look at the hiring manager if you can find it for the job, not the recruiter. Most of the time, it's not even listed. But when it is listed, it's often the recruiter. Every now and then, it's the hiring manager. They'll even say in the job description, you'll be reporting to blank in this role. Go look at blank that they're reporting to and go find their job description and read it. And now combine the two. Now you're like, now you're next level, right? You went from level one to level two. Now you're on like level 10 doing that because mm. now you know that what their mm -hmm. boss is going to judge them on and what their boss is graded on. You're already in elite yeah. status. And all you did was look at job descriptions for like a day. Yeah. Yeah. Just that extra upfront effort. Well, it's so interesting you bring this up because I think I see a lot that there's a lot of pressure on outbound sellers, whatever job title they hold, to just perform. Mm -hmm. And 
to hit numbers and whatever those numbers are, obviously. And then quota is sort of dangled over their head as a carrot and a stick. And a lot of the things that we've talked about today feel like it's a slow down to speed up sort of motion Mm. where we're sort of taking some additional time before going and doing the things, especially if we have a good foundation so far. If we don't have that, there's some you know other work to be right. done. But to really accelerate in our careers. So for somebody who's maybe struggling to make time or feel like the pressure is like too great for them to just like, I got to go make all these calls today. Or, or maybe they are genuinely judged on, you got to hit 100 calls today or 100 dials or whatever. How should you make time for that? Like how mentally, emotionally, <laughs> physically, like how how can you make time for this sort of more strategic work? That's a really good question, man. And I don't know if I actually really have a good answer. I was in a cold call environment where it started off at 50 a day, then it became 75, then it became 100, then it became 120. And I remember 120 at 100, not even at 120, There was just no time to do even basic research, just like basically looking at my Mm -hmm. list and just trying to evaluate if it's even a good list. There just wasn't time. The amount of calls you had to make in the call blocks and then between bathroom breaks and just trying to get lunch and blah, 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 your day was going by fast. And occasional, some email responses, and it was just a few pepper in some internal meetings. And it was just like, man, there's no, like you gotta be on it to hit 100. And then to hit 120, it was like, no, you gotta, Candidly, you had to pad your numbers a bit. I had some lines that never picked up mm. that I was like, <laughs> on those days when I needed a couple extra dials, I'm like, I'm going to call this number like three times right now <laughs> because I know they never pick yeah. up. <laughs> it's good padding, good padding for the stats. So yeah, yeah. That, it is tough. If you're in that situation, it is tough. Mm. And and you're, you're correct and astute to point out that it is a slow down to speed up mentality. And I mean... The thing is this, and this is what drove me crazy when I was an SDR, and I'm grateful to God that I never have to go back <laughs> to being an SDR again, <laughs> that if you did a pie chart of all the outcomes of the day, okay, positive responses is like a sliver, negative responses like it may be an equal or slightly bigger sliver, and then no response is like the rest of the entire pie. You spend most of the day hitting voicemails, not getting answers, sending emails that may never even be delivered, let alone opened. That's the majority of your day, okay? If you think about that from like a Six Sigma standpoint, that would be called waste. Waste. Wasted time, wasted resources, wasted energy. So the question becomes, how do I increase my response rate by you know 1%? How about this? How about we decrease the voicemail rate or the no answer rate by 30%. What's easier to do? To tackle the 92, 96% of outcomes that are just a waste or trying to address the 4% of outcomes that are a little bit more meaningful. It's easier to tackle 96. Mm -hmm. So the techniques that we're talking about, like looking at the job description and doing some provocative messaging and this and that, that tackles the 96. It reduces the amount of waste. You're gonna have less times where you get ignored. You're going to have less outcomes where you're sounding irrelevant. And that should automatically increase the portion of the pie that's positive responses and, and getting conversations started. So like, you know, find somebody that understands that work for a company that gets that or explain that to your boss. Like, you know, I feel like I'm spinning my wheels here to get that 2% response rate. 
And I'd like to try to tackle the 98% of non-responsiveness first. You know, I've never been able to articulate until right now why I was always rubbed the wrong way with sales coaches, outbound coaches who are like searching for that 1%, 2% improvement. And like, I get it. I understand why it's important. And I've always understood why it's important. But I I always think I'm like, all of that effort for 2% return, like, man, that is a low return on effort. And what you just articulated, I think, connected a lot of dots for me, which is the biggest chunk of the pie, usually, for most outbound sellers is just silence. It's just nothing. And a lot of the work that we do, I suppose, on a consulting level, but a lot of the content we've done at the B2B Power Hour isn't really about, I mean, it's kind of about the 2%. It's about, it's somewhat about the response rates and earning it. But a lot of it is like, how do we reduce that? Yeah. And make major improvements on the no responses because it is so much more effective. It is an outsized return, whether it's better targeting or messaging or going from 96 to like 88. That's an eight percentage difference. That is staggering. And that's why if you talk to somebody, anybody who knows outbound would tell you the most important thing in outbound is not your cold call script. It's not your email. It's not your messaging. It's not any of that. Your number one most important thing in outbound is your list. If you have a bad list and all the right techniques, good luck. That's going to be a really, really boring grind. If you have a killer a killer list and bad techniques and poor form, you'll still do fine. You'll still do fine because if the list is primed and ready and it was well-researched and it actually has the right numbers and all that kind of stuff, and even a bad seller will do okay with a really good list. Yeah, let's pause here for a moment because you had brought up lists just like briefly on an aside. And I was like, I want to make sure we talk about this before our conversation ends. So I know that list building at an organizational level has a lot of varieties. Sometimes the marketing team on you know passes off lists. Sometimes managers build territories and then there's selected accounts if you're selling into larger mm-hmm. ones. Sometimes there's a mix of inbound and then just like pulled six cents data sort of things. Mm-hmm. So and it can feel to the individual maybe powerless about what accounts are the right or how to sort or prioritize. So do you have a few top tips for sellers? in the best ways to structure and prioritize their list for outbound? Yes, because I did it when I was an SDR. Initially, I would just call the list that they gave me, and I found out that there was just an expectation that anywhere from 15 to 20% of the list would just be bad data. And I was like, one out of every five calls I'm going to make, you already know is a complete waste of time. Wow, these lists suck. I'm not calling them anymore. Mm-hmm. So your number one thing to call or message as a seller is your follow-up. Fortune is in the follow-up. The people who told you, not interested right now, you know, call me back in Q4 and you're calling them in Q3 to be like, hey, you told me Q4 is the right time and I want to get ahead of it with you. Those are the best calls. Your follow-up. Your positive response, but miss the timing follow-ups is your best thing. From there, you could say, any elite seller at your company, like the AEs, they have good lists. They have good lists. You know, they have a list of attendees from a certain event that they know is highly relevant. They have a list that they've got that they checked out that they know use the competitor. They've got this list. You know, they always have these lists 
on their desktop. And uh, I develop relationships with the, some of the top AEs. I was covering California, for example. And I remember developing relationships with the top AEs and being like, look, I'll call any list you want. Give me your good stuff and let me have at it. <laughs> and I'll report daily for you on everything I'm doing on that list. And we can keep it offline if you want to put it in Salesforce. I'll work out an Excel sheet with you. Just give me the good stuff. And they did. Oh, my God. And all of a sudden, the treasure trove opened up. And I was like, whoa, you were packing. You were packing really good lists. And you weren't telling me. You weren't telling the company. So that happens. Lost opportunities is another one. You know, I would just double check with the owner to make sure it wasn't like a bad blood kind of a loss. But that's not often. You know, most of the time it was just a loss. And reaching out to those companies after six months, after eight months, and just checking in. Be surprised the conversations you can get started from from a lost opportunity list, things like that. Like just be scrappy. Another thing that I did was I would look at companies that had the same VC, so the portfolio companies of a certain VC, and I would just call up the other portfolio and be like, "Hey, we already work with five companies within this portfolio. You probably weren't aware. I don't think you guys talk to each other about this sort of stuff. I'd imagine you're not, you know, talking about all the vendors that you all use." But just wanted to introduce it and see if it would be relevant for you all. Finding those connections. So it's not like a totally cold outbound. There's some reason behind it, some logic as to why I'm reaching out. Because the companies of this portfolio are somewhat in the same, you know, mindset, having the same investor. Things like that. So you you just, you know, you build your list and you work off. I mean, at, at different points in time, Morgan, I probably have like five or six lists in a day that I knew I was going to hit up. Each of them was going to get me 20 or 30 calls. That's going to get me to my total number. But I was not cold calling, you know, the store-bought list. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you just laid out. And the main thing I want to call out that really speaks to me is this sort of creativity you're having about why a conversation is worthwhile with who I'm talking to. Because it's not just... I feel like... some. I think there's a lot of good discipline around on a cold outbound brand new list. Hey, you know, top priorities are these for these reasons, because there's triggers or there's some insight we have about the company or there's some news event. Like there's a real fresh, good timing, highly targeted reason to reach out. And I think there's a lot of good content out in the world about, okay, you got a brand new list. How do you work it? But every example you just laid out is getting creative about the follow-up or getting creative about reactivating opportunities that maybe you didn't know about, first of all, or maybe that you didn't work on originally. And now we're sort of getting scrappy and and finding those new ways. And just like, I don't know, realizing that the reason you're reaching out is because it will be a worthwhile conversation. It's not just a follow-up for follow-up's sake. It's like, no, you lost opportunity eight months ago. Like, hey, I just want to check in, make sure everything's going well. Like, that's a worthwhile conversation to have. Yeah, and it ties into the mentality because I don't want to be wasteful yeah. with my own time. Yeah. Why would yeah. I want to make 100 dials knowing that 99 of them are going to be junk or knowing that I'm working a list where 20% of it is garbage? Mm-hmm. Like, no, mm-hmm. thank you. <laughs> like, No, thank you. No, thank you. I've got better things to do. <laughs> no. That's not sales. Yeah. I don't know what that is, but it's not sales. Mm-hmm. They call it sales, but I'm like, no, that's, I'm, that's not sales. <laughs> that's definitely no. not. See, that's where the AI comes in now, right? Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, where, that's where all these you companies don't need me get for to play. Yeah. <laughs> no. All right. Well, Bilal, I feel like we have covered a gamut today. 
this is a masterclass in Outbound. I'm so appreciative of all the insights you dropped, limbic brain stuff, courageous messaging stuff, psychological safety, <laughs> list building, timing, workflow. I mean, I'm telling you, we covered a whole, <laughs> yes. whole range of topics today. So thank you so much for coming on the show. If people want to have more conversations with you, they have questions about this, or they want to get more of this brilliance that you bring, where should they go? I well, appreciate that. I'm humbled. Uh, thank you. <laughs> it comes from a lot of uh, hard lessons learned. I'll tell you what, you do outbound for 13 <laughs> years, you're going to learn a thing or two. Oh, yeah. About how hard Those it is. are the best. Uh, so, <laughs> Gray hairs, man. <laughs> yeah. The battle scars are there. The battle scars are definitely there. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if, if you want more, the best place is my newsletter. Uh, deathtofluff.substack.com. If you just go to my link tree, link tree dash death to fluff, all the links are there. So you'll find all the good stuff. And then on LinkedIn, I'm posting almost every single day about what it takes to do this stuff. I, I know it's an evergreen subject, you know, how to fill your pipeline. I mean, you know, if you're in sales, you'll never, <laughs> it never ends. And so <laughs> never ends. it's there for you. So yeah, LinkedIn. And uh, I guess actually my link tree is probably the most easiest way to find everything because I put I try to put as many helpful links as I can for people that want more. Sweet. We'll drop that in the show notes below. And again, Bilal Batrawi, thanks so much for coming on the B2B Power Hour. It's been great to have you. My privilege. Thank you. Thank you for being an amazing host. Hey, we know how hard implementing this stuff is. That's why this podcast exists. We decided to take it a step further and start the One Up Club to give you the frameworks and resources you need to move the dial in 2023. Learn more at b2bpowerhour.com slash join. Because we know you have a quota and you can't afford to wait.